You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Scott Barber, you're here for another episode of the Doctor's Lounge where we're going to be talking about hoaxes surrounding COVID. So on this show, obviously, we've been talking about COVID-19. It's been the number one issue on everybody's minds. It's affecting every corner of our lives, and it looks like there's a potential for a mask mandate going out there, uh, as well as some more limitations on our opening. And I want to talk a little bit about how we're analyzing what is happening and how we are making bad decisions based on bad information. Now, originally, I think a lot of us believed that common mistakes were being made. And now my concern is that political interests are driving our policy in this country and not necessarily the medical facts on the ground. We know on this show, our general concept is to talk about the benefits of free market health care and the problems that we have with socialized medicine. And I think this is being illustrated with our response to COVID-19 better than anything. And it really helps make the case. Politically speaking, people on the left had wanted to have universal income, a universal minimum wage. Congress right now is discussing another round of bailouts to the tune of between $1 trillion and $3 trillion. This type of money is unfathomable. We cannot even comprehend a $1 trillion. We've already just put out $2 trillion that we don't have. And the predicate for all of these decisions is this COVID-19 pandemic and is allowing people who want to expand the size, scope, and power of government to increase this spending. we got people now that are staying home and we're having difficulties with getting them back to work because they're actually making more money with unemployment benefits than they would be making going back to work. And this is incentivizing people to stay at home. And this is all being based on a, a pandemic where faulty information is not only presented to us, people are going out of their way to make sure that the information that we get is faulty, causing us to remain hysterical and to allow these decisions to be made upon us, allow us to be locked down in our homes, allow us to be mandated to wear masks because we're afraid. What I hope to do today is sort of expose some of these hoaxes and give you some more facts so that you can make informed decisions about what's happening to us and act accordingly. Now, the number one hoax that we identify on the show is when Dr. Fauci and many others in politics told us that there was nothing to be concerned about in China. Dr. Fauci went on TV and reported that there was no human-to-human transfer. The World Health Organization actually tweeted on February 14th that it did not seem that human-to-human transmission of the coronavirus was likely. I remember when I heard that at the time, I thought, given how little we know about this virus, it seems unusual that they would say that. Based on that information, we were encouraged to continue to go out. We were encouraged to allow travel. 
when Donald Trump, I believe it was February 30th, wanted to ban travel to the United States from China, he was criticized in the media. He was criticized by the World Health Organization. And people called him basically racist. And this was at a time when China was banning travel within China, but at the same time, they were allowing travel from the Wuhan province to the rest of the world and effectively exposed the entire planet to this COVID-19. And thank God that Donald Trump had the courage to to ban travel from China because without that ban, we don't know how, how much worse things would have been. In the beginning, Dr. Fauci talked to us about masks, and he went on TV and he stated that masks worn in the community were probably ineffective. He basically commented on masks the way I comment on masks, the way medical doctors are trained about masks. The idea of masks is not a new concept. We've been thinking about this for many decades. I've pondered this question and studied this question 25, 30 years ago when I was in medical school. It comes up from time to time because of various mask-wearing policies in hospitals, so we, we re-examine the literature. I have a friend who is doing an op-ed and wanted me to do some research on masks, so I recently did a really deep dive on the history of masks. And... I could find no compelling evidence that masks are effective at the transmission of influenza-like illnesses. Now, people are very passionate about this subject now. It's become very political. Um, I see on social media that if somebody's not wearing a mask in a store, they're being attacked by other people. I know there's a lot of fear out there. I'm here to tell you that while I've seen no compelling evidence that masks are effective, I don't know that they're not effective. I just want to have an open and on, honest conversation about what we're talking about. And when we think about masks, I think people have come to realize that there are different kind of masks. There's what we know as an N95 respirator mask that filters out 95% of particulate matter. There are surgical masks, uh, there are paper masks, and now there are cloth masks. Canada, Britain, other countries have done meta-analysis over decades of research on the transmission of influenza-like illnesses, and all of these meta-analyses conclude that there's very little evidence to conclude that masks of any kind are effective at transmitting the virus. There's a lot of studies performed in the dental community as well. Dentists spend a lot of time over, over patients in close proximity, and there have been studies done to evaluate their antibodies. And it's been known that dentists in general have a high titer of antibodies to various influenza viruses and respiratory syncytial viruses. And research has actually been done to compare dentists who wear masks and face shields compared to dentists who don't wear masks and face shields. And no difference can be found between the two. The important thing to know about masks is that masks do not filter virus. Um, they do not catch virus in the mask. So the idea of a mask is that the spread of respiratory droplets, large respiratory droplets, will be prevented by a mask. Now, I don't dispute that certain large droplets could be prevented, especially when you cough and sneeze, by a mask. But we don't even know that that is exactly how 
the disease it's transmitted. Nobody has demonstrated that the way you contract COVID-19 is when somebody coughs in your face. The concept is fluids from your eyes, your nose, your mucous membranes are contaminated with virus, and somehow that gets transmitted to other patients, other people. This could be in the form of respiratory droplets that stay in the air. Uh, This could be when I touch my face, I touch my eyes, and then I touch a doorknob. Another person comes by and touches the doorknob. It's not exactly clear how this happens. But what we do know is that in general, when studies have been performed to try and look at the transmission of influenza-like viruses, the general state of the literature is that they're ineffective. Now, having said that, in my opinion, I think it's perfectly reasonable that people who have private businesses, private homes can mandate that people come into their private property be wearing masks. And I personally will respect that in anybody. I do not feel that government needs to be mandating that we wear masks when the data out there is unclear at best. And if you had to make an interpretation of what the data says, it pretty much is clear that it says that masks are not effective at preventing the transmission of influenza-like viruses. In fact, if you go on the new, on the uh, CDC's own website, it says that out in the community, uh, masks are, are ineffective at uh, preventing viral transmission. In the New England Journal of Medicine in 2020, it stated, we know that wearing a mask outside healthcare facilities offers little, if any, protection from infection. In a, the Infectious Disease Research Journal in 2015, the only randomized controlled trial of cloth masks concluded that cloth masks resulted in a higher infection than the control group. Do you understand what that means? That means that in the only randomized controlled study, so the only decent study that I'm aware of in masks that was in uh, published in Infectious Disease Research in 2015, concluded that the people who wore cloth masks actually had a higher rate of infection than people who wore nothing. Now, all of a sudden, decades of research, decades of looking at the function of masks is completely ignored, and the CDC has now changed their opinion on masks and I recently went to the website and one of their rationale for recommending masks is based on an anecdotal uh, case report of two hairstylists in St. Louis that uh, were tested positive for coronavirus and were actually uh, still cutting hair of their patients and they went and did uh, testing of those patients and something like 46 of 139 patients, don't quote me, the numbers are close, I can't remember exactly what it was, 46 or 47 out of 139 total people were tested and they all tested negative. And based on this anecdotal report, we're supposed to conclude that masks are completely effective at preventing the transmission of virus. And I'm just stunned that in this day and age, this is what passes for science. Now again, My goal here is not to engage in the politics when it comes to medicine. I mean, obviously, we talk about the virtues of free market medicine and the negative impact of socialized government-run medicine. But as it comes to this coronavirus, I have a family. I'm 
worried about myself. I'm not really worried about it because I have enough information to know that I'm pretty well protected. Uh, but I want my kids to go back to school. I want to protect my patients. I have a medical practice with five clinics. We have a surgery center. My regular listeners know that. Uh, we have been implementing common sense protocols, meaning washing hands. We've been wiping down surfaces with disinfectants because we know that the coronavirus is is very susceptible to these disinfectants on countertops and doorknobs. Our operation has been virtually completely open for the entire time, which is now coming up on seven months of personal experience. We've had a handful of people test positive. Uh, nobody has really gotten sick. The few people that have gotten a little ill, we treated early with hydroxychloroquine and zinc, and they all got better. So this is a real-life experience. This is real-life data that we can talk about. How do we get back into our society? Because we all know that there is a negative impact with the uh, constant lockdown, the preventing of businesses from getting, from reopening, from keeping our kids in school. You know, when this first came around, I thought about Rutgers basketball team. They hadn't gotten into uh, the NCAA tournament in a long time, and they finally got into it. And unfortunately, the uh, NCAA tournament, basketball tournament, was canceled. And my, my very first thought was I felt so bad for those kids on that Rutgers basketball team. That's an opportunity that's never going to come their way again. And I'm not saying that it wasn't a reasonable thing to do to cancel the NCAA tournament. I'm not saying that. I'm simply trying to say that there are negative consequences to keeping our society locked down that need to be compared to the risks that we're facing by opening up. And these hoaxes that we keep getting about the information surrounding COVID-19 is preventing us from making informed, rational decisions. Now, <clears throat> early on in the disease, uh, the politics of COVID-19 became evident. The lockdowns damaged the economy. Uh, the damaged economy is a benefit to political opponents of Donald Trump. We all know that. Uh, we've already seen how massive government spending has followed COVID-19. We did this $2 trillion bailout bill. By the way, we don't have these $2 trillion. I mean, we're simply printing this money, and there's going to be a negative consequence to that that we've yet to experience. But we printed this money with virtually no resistance. Some of that money was donated to the Kennedy Center. I mean, there are irrational decisions that are being made based on this data, spending of money. And now Congress is talking about spending another $1 trillion to $3 trillion that we don't have. Folks, we normally spend $4 trillion a year that we don't have. Uh, on, we, we currently take in about $3 trillion in taxes and things like that. We spend $4 trillion. On top of that, we've spent $2 more trillion, and now we're talking about another $1 to $3 trillion. This is absolute insanity. Now, the reason that we're making these decisions, supposedly, is because of spiking numbers. And we saw the CDC uh, was documenting cases and deaths that uh, early on in this disease, everybody was following very closely because we all wanted to know what was happening, me included. I'd wake up every morning. I'd go on Worldometer, 
which is a website that documents all of the daily cases and graphs and, and stratifies and, and allows us to look at the actual numbers in real time. This data is provided to Worldometer by governments. So when they look at Italy, they get the numbers from the Italian government. When they look at the United States, they get it from the United States government. They post numbers from different states within the United States. They're getting it from those local governments. And so originally, we were watching the data to see what was happening. Now, in order to get us to consider these lockdowns, you have to understand how all of this unfolded. If you guys can remember back to when we started these lockdowns, what was the concept? The concept was we wanted to flatten the curve, meaning we wanted to make sure that we didn't have so many people get sick and run to the hospital and overwhelm our system that we wanted to sort of stay at home with the hopes, no no science behind this, that lockdowns are effective. But we wanted to stay home with the hopes that over a two-week period, we would be able to prepare and be ready to handle this influx of patients. And it never materialized. But in order to continue these lockdowns, which afforded political power uh, to opponents of Donald Trump and to people who want massive spending and who want to, uh, you know, there's issues now with possible mail-in ballots, which we all know are fraught with fraud and abuse. There are reasons to want to continue these lockdowns. And so the CDC was reporting deaths and they had a number on their website that was something around 60,000 uh, deaths. Suddenly, that number got reduced to 30,000. But after we had already received and gotten the panic of the 60,000, uh, then the number was, was, um, was downgraded to 30,000. Now, as a physician with a practice, I was following these numbers in real time. I've since gone back to review this data. And as I was Googling the information, I noted that there were tons of fact checkers from left-leaning articles, left-of-center articles, saying the fact checkers saying, no, 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 that the CDC did not reduce the numbers from 60,000 to 30,000, that we're misunderstanding the numbers. Now, when I look into that, it's completely false. The CDC absolutely presented 60,000 as the deaths and then reduced it to somewhere around 30,000 over a weekend. And that to me is another hoax that they're coming in behind and trying to justify the the decrease from 60,000 to 30,000 saying that it was just an interpretation of the data because the reason for the 60,000 number has already been accomplished which was to maintain these lockdowns now we've got these lockdowns that are seemingly going in perpetuity in a lot of places and the fact that these numbers were falsified to us is sort of irrelevant at this point. Now, early on in the disease, like so often happens in medicine, I learn about how to treat my patients by talking to other doctors and learning from their experiences. Just like other doctors will talk to me about my experiences to help guide their current treatment of patients. This is what we call the practice of medicine. This is the art of medicine. I remember when I first got out of training, uh, you know, I'm on my own now, and I would do my surgeries, total knees and things like that. And when I was done with the surgery, I would go back into the recovery room, and I noticed that 
not always, but sometimes people were in a lot of pain when they woke up after surgery, and it really bothered me. And I thought to myself, I have to come up with a way to manage this pain. And so I spoke with friends about different medications, different strategies for reducing immediate post-op pain, and I came up with a process that we refer to as the cocktail. It's basically a combination of Marcaine, Toradol, and morphine combined. I'll inject it into a joint when I do an arthroscopic procedure. If I do a total knee or a total hip, I'll inject it into the joint when I'm done with the procedure. And it's had seemingly magical effects. In fact, over the last 20 years, um, nurses in the recovery room would notice that my patients had very limited pain and share that information with other doctors who also wanted the cocktail. And if you go to a lot of hospitals in the area, you can hear people talk about wanting the cocktail. This came, this ability to understand how to treat patients came from known information, from anecdotal experiences among doctors, and we spread it. And now it's a more commonly uh, used procedure. The point I'm trying to make is there were no randomized control crossover placebo studies for this stuff. It was just using already known information and doing a risk-benefit analysis. I know that injecting these medicines independently uh, is not a problem. Putting it together was not a stretch. The risk of doing it was small, and the benefits were, were tremendous. And now I've been doing this for 20 years. I've had tremendous results, no negative impacts from it. And so now I'm aware that this thing is effective. Well, right around the time that this, pro- this disease process, COVID-19, was spreading across the world, doctors from across the world were talking about a medication called hydroxychloroquine. Now, we all know and have heard about the medication hydroxychloroquine. For my listeners who don't know about it, hydroxychloroquine is a medication that has been FDA-approved for 65 years, Okay. FDA approved. They didn't use for 65 years. That is a very long time. It has an extremely safe profile, safer than Tylenol, which is over-the-counter, safer than Motrin, which is over-the-counter, safer than aspirin, which is over-the-counter. This medicine has been used for a very long time, and doctors in the field using already known research were using hydroxychloroquine as prophylaxis for contracting coronavirus. Uh, There have been studies written talking about other coronaviruses and its positive effect on preventing people from developing coronavirus. Now, why are we talking about hydroxychloroquine during a hoaxes discussion? Well, this is really the most egregious one that that I can imagine. You've got these you've got this data out there. You've got these doctors in the field that are using hydroxychloroquine combined with zinc. That's very important to note it. Hydroxychloroquine is what we call an ionophore. It helps zinc get into the cell and zinc is what prevents the virus from replicating. So it's the combination of hydroxychloroquine and zinc. Also, It is very important that people are treated early in the disease process with hydroxychloroquine and zinc. And this seemed to me to be a very simple, safe, rational um, method of treating people. There was, at the time and still today, there's a ton of literature to support and suggest that it's efficacious. 
and there was a ton of anecdotal evidence, meaning people were using it using it during the um, the pandemic uh, to treat people with positive results. There's a doctor in New York, Dr. Vladimir Zelenko, who published a report that demonstrated a five times decrease in the mortality of patients given the combination of of um, hydroxychloroquine and zinc, uh, plus or minus um, azithromycin, which we commonly know as a Z-pack. So sometimes if you get a viral viral upper respiratory infection, uh, the virus sort of damages the lining of your respiratory tract, and then you get a super infection with the bacteria. And then when that happens, you get a bacterial pneumonia that came because of the virus. And so the Z-pack is sort of what takes care of the bacterial pneumonia. That's a little bit of inside baseball, but you guys should be aware that this combination of hydroxychloroquine and zinc is what's being shown to be effective, and the azithromycin, or ZPAC, is being added in certain certain circumstances. The point is, there was data out there to support this, and for some reason, uh, Dr. Fauci came, came on camera and said, well, you know, he wasn't really sure about it, and he really sounded negative about it. And I remember at the time thinking to myself, why are you negative about it? I mean, think about it. If I was to tell you, hey, if you take Tylenol, I think it could protect you against COVID-19. How many of you would say, well, wait, Scott, I need to wait for a double-blind crossover placebo-randomized peer-review trial before I try the Tylenol? Or would you just take the Tylenol? I mean, it's a ridiculous statement, but yet with the hydroxychloroquine, which, again, has a long safety record and has been FDA-approved for for 65 years— uh, for some reason, the media was starting to was telling us that it number one wasn't efficacious, and when that was not effective at stopping doctors from prescribing it, they had to come out with the next hoax, which is it's killing people. So I thought this was odd. How is it that this drug that we prescribe all the time for sixty five years to rheumatoid patients, um, to lupus patients, to uh, people who are just going on mission trips and need prophylaxis for malaria. In fact, Mark Levin recently uh, posted a picture of President Obama's prescription for hydroxychloroquine that he got in 2008 that he apparently was taking for prophylaxis of something. Um, how is it all of a sudden that this medicine is not only ineffective, but it's killing people? And there was a study that was uh, conducted on uh, VA patients and people like me and other doctors immediately wanted to review this article. What What is it about this article that's suddenly making this drug that's been safe and in wide use for 65 years, suddenly now it's killing people? And what you see is that there's no zinc included. Uh, these patients were deathly ill with a, uh, a ton of comorbid conditions. I mean, it was really the worst possible study you could imagine. And it only took educated people, actually uneducated people, uh, you know, two minutes to realize that it was a ridiculous study. And that study was ineffective at moving public opinion and changing the practices of hydroxychloroquine prescription. Well, not too long after that, another study came out in the New England Journal of Medicine in the Lancet. Now, for most of us doctors out there, that was kind of like, whoa, that is crazy. Because the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet are respected medical journals. And to get published in a journal like that, you re, re, it requires rigorous uh, um, 
um, review, and it goes through a very rigorous process before a paper can get published in the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet. And yet, here is this paper that suddenly says hydroxychloroquine, which again has been in use for 65 years safely, all of a sudden now it's dangerous. And what happened after that? The FDA came in and essentially banned the use of hydroxychloroquine by community doctors. Now, why would anybody do that? First of all, the FDA does not have the power to ban the use of hydroxychloroquine or any other uh, FDA-approved drug, even off-label. The FDA, once it approves a drug... If I was to use a drug off-label, the only thing the FDA regulates is the ability of the company to market the off-label use of the drug. But as far as a physician's, according to the law, all I need to prescribe an FDA-approved drug is I need to use it within the FDA-approved dose for the FDA-approved duration uh, for the FDA-approved interval, meaning every six hours, every eight hours. And then the final thing I need is the consent of the patient. That is the law. The FDA does not have the ability to tell a doctor when to use a medication. And in fact, doctors use many medications, uh, somewhere between 40 and 60% of all medications are used off-label. Because what happens? Anecdotally, we give a medication for one thing and we find out it works for another thing. Over the period of time and use and we see the safety of it, we do a risk-benefit analysis. And when people have problems, we'll give them a medication and it solves the problem. And it may not be the problem that the medication was FDA-approved. This is what we call the practice of medicine. We have blood pressure medicine, Verapamil, which helps with blood pressure. That was designed to do but they also noted that it relieves migraines. So it started being prescribed for migraines. The list goes on and on and on in terms of how we use medication. But yet the FDA came out and basically said they're banning the use of hydroxychloroquine. Now, the effect of this, it doesn't matter that it was illegal. I mean, it doesn't matter that the, the FDA didn't have the power to do it. The practical effect of their coming out publicly to, to say that hydroxychloroquine was dangerous ostensibly prevented hydroxychloroquine from being prescribed because community doctors who didn't know any better were like, well, I guess I can't prescribe it. The FDA has told me it's dangerous. Pharmacists were refusing to fill it. So even if I said, no, that's ridiculous, I know the, the law, I know the actual data supporting hydroxychloroquine, that it's efficacious, that it's safe, that it's been FDA approved for a long time, it didn't matter. Because when I wrote that script, the pharmacist would refuse to fill it. And so what we had was, and still have to this day, is we have a lack of use of hydroxychloroquine. Now, this is monumental. We have seen from um, anecdotal and, again, correlation. I'm not going to say that this is a study, but let's use correlations because Again, correlations is driving our policy on masks, right? We got these two hairdressers. They wore a mask. Apparently, the people that the the hair that they cut, they didn't get it. That's a correlation. And now we're doing a mask mandate. Well, when you look at countries who have hydroxychloroquine over the county, over the counter, countries like Costa Rica, like the United Arab Emirates, like Israel, like South Africa, like Chile, like Turkey, like India, like Russia. Countries that have a, um, a less robust medical infrastructure are doing better than countries with a more robust uh, 
uh, healthcare structure. And what is the what is the uh, correlation here? The countries that have hydroxychloroquine and zinc available over the counter seem to have a better response to um, to the to the covid so what i'm trying to say is these third world countries some some of which uh costa rica united arab emirates israel turkey some of these countries they have hydroxychloroquine over the counter and their death rate and their case rate from covid is less than countries that do not have hydroxychloroquine over the counter again it's just a correlation. It's not necessarily a cause and effect, but it's important as we're trying to figure out as doctors, as we're practicing the art of medicine, it's something to look at. Now, the I, we're not done with this Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine. So they came out with this study and basically offered a predicate for the FDA to ostensibly ban the use of hydroxychloroquine and zinc. Now, why would they do that? Well... Hydroxychloroquine was being studied, okay? So a lot of these studies were also prevented. So there's no studies on hydroxychloroquine going on based on the articles that came out in The Lancet and then the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, it also convinced a lot of community doctors that it wasn't effective. And even today, community doctors are not 100% aware of the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine and zinc. And then what happened shortly after the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine, mind you, these these very prestigious, important medical journals that have rigorous review processes before anything gets published, well, all of a sudden they retracted the story. And why did they do that? Well, the data that suggested that hydroxychloroquine was not only ineffective but unsafe was produced by a company called Surgisphere. When they were asked to provide the data for actual verification, it turned out there was no data. And now Surgisphere, which a company which only came into being after President Trump advocated for hydroxychloroquine, is suddenly gone. Now, does anybody find that odd? Does anybody find that disturbing? I mean, two prestigious journals published an article that suggested that the hydroxychloroquine was ineffective and not only that, dangerous, causing the FDA to then ban it, which then led to the stoppage of studies on hydroxychloroquine and its, infect and its effectiveness in the middle of this pandemic and also prevented community doctors from prescribing this potentially life-saving medication, does that not frighten you? It not only frightens me, but then it, it begs the question, what is going on here? Why would anybody do that? Well, let's think about it. If somebody is in the community, and I've talked about this on the show before, let's say that you're a little bit sick and you call me up and you say, hey, Scott, I'm not feeling well. I got, I got a little headache, maybe a cough. And I say, you know what, let me just call you in this very cheap generic medication that's been around for 65 years, super safe, um, great efficacy, um, great safety record. Let me just call that in. I call it in. You go get your medication. You, of course, combine it with zinc, and you do this early in the disease. And guess what? In one to three days, you get better. What happens? Well, number one, you don't go to the hospital, and you cannot be counted as a new case. And you cannot be admitted to the hospital and come out counted as a new hospitalization. And 
you're not going to get sick. And so most importantly, you're not going to die from the virus. And to the people who want to see this pandemic continue, to the people who want to continue these lockdowns, this is a favorable outcome. Now, listen, I'm not even making the argument that I know for a fact that hydroxychloroquine is 100% effective in this. What I can tell you is I know that there are doctors in the field who suggest it. I can tell you that in my own personal experience, which is not very many people, they're just anecdotal points of, of reference, but this is how medicine is done, that in my own experience, it's been effective. And there is a lot more literature suggesting and confirming, well, I should say affirming the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine and zinc than the literature on masks or lockdown by far. So if we're going to be making national policy on how to handle this pandemic using science, we ought to at least be consistent about that science. So if the government is going to mandate that I wear masks and the government is going to mandate that our our society stay locked down based on anecdotal studies, then why are we not allowing hydroxychloroquine to be used by by community doctors. Why is Donald Trump not going to make hydroxychloroquine an over-the-counter medication so that patients can make their own informed decisions like Americans and like free people about whether or not they want to take a medication that has a 65-year track record of safety? Now, in the media too early on, they talked about the types of complications you could get, cardiac and the prolongation of the QT interval. You guys don't really need to know that's inside baseball doctor stuff, but uh, the QT interval prolongation is a cardiac issue. And then there was some retinal issues uh, uh, associated with it that they were trying to talk about. So what did I do as a practicing physician? Well, I do what I always do when I have patients. You guys might not realize this, but I don't know everything off the top of my head. I have to do what all doctors do. I research. So that's what doctors are good at. That's what we spend our time doing. We, we gather data and we research and we have the ability to learn things really quickly and then provide our patients with, with um, information to help them uh, make their own decisions. So I was able to go and review hydroxychloroquine and realize that there were lots of studies that affirmed its efficacy, its safety. It's been in use for a very long time. And I think patients ought to be able to make their own decisions and decide if they want to use this medication, especially when we don't have a whole lot of uh, good options at this time. So um, this is still unfolding. You know, we still don't have... um, we still don't have a widespread acceptance that hydroxychloroquine and zinc is is efficacious, meaning that it works. We still don't have a wide accepting acceptance of that out in the community among community doctors, and it's very, very important that we start spreading the word. Now, some studies, too, that have come out that have been negative, they recently had one uh, from the University of Minnesota. They use toxic doses of hydroxychloroquine. They typically administer the drug after patients are already very sick, and they always eliminate zinc. And let's not forget, hydroxychloroquine is what allows the zinc to get into the cell, and it's the zinc that prevents the replication of the virus. So I'm asking myself, are these studies really just honest mistakes, or is it on purpose? Because 
you would think that researchers that are conducting a study on hydroxychloroquine would understand the basics and at least have a control arm of a low-dose hydroxychloroquine in combination with zinc. And yet these, these studies never do. And that's what makes me believe that this is not an honest mistake, that it's an intentional mistake. Um, we also know that based on this, these studies, there was, uh, there was a very good study that was going on in South Dakota that got canceled, and it was based largely on these false studies that said that hydroxychloroquine was not only ineffective but unsafe. So to me, the biggest hoax so far has been these bogus journal articles that were submitted with um, dubious data, actually no data. Uh, produced by a um, a company called Surgisphere that is no longer in business. Uh, this is quite frightening to me, and because of this, it makes me distrustful of everything that I'm being presented on coronavirus. Now, again, as a doctor, I've been following this since day one, and we all can remember that the whole point of lockdown, which, by the way, when we talk about lockdown, where did this come from? Lockdown is basically a policy that was seen in the movie Contagion. I think it was in 2011. Um, in 2006, George Bush was faced with the H5N1 um, pandemic, which really never turned anything into anything substantial. But based on that experience, it got him thinking about wanting to come up with a policy for the next pandemic. And so he... Uh, started uh, a team of, of people to put together a policy research. And what we got was a bunch of computer programmers. And one day I'm going to do a, an entire show on the lockdown. But we got computer programs that did modeling. Anybody familiar with modeling? Right? We've all been exposed to modeling throughout this entire pandemic. And everything we see with modeling is that it doesn't work, that it's been grossly inaccurate. So anyway, there was this modeling uh, there was a young girl, uh, 14 years old at the time, who had a science project, who did a modeling um, science project in high school that uh, involved, um, let me see if I can find it here, it involved a small town of 500 people, and based on this commuter, computer modeling, uh, she estimated that the lockdowns would prevent um, a transmission of a virus. And so this computer modeling uh, concept turned into a national policy. And I, might I add, over the objections of uh, experienced epidemiologists at the time that were rightly concerned with the economic devastation and all of the other devastation that we're seeing. So we've got this lockdown policy in place that, by the way, has no basis in science. Um, and why are we why are we continuing it? Well, we're continuing it because of faulty information that we can continue to get. And the lockdown was initiated with this flatten the curve concept. Remember, never forget this. The idea of lockdown was never to prevent the transmission of virus. Because, and the reason is because that's not possible. Right. It's already been demonstrated that the supermajority of patients with this virus are either asymptomatic or so minimally symptomatic that they never know they have it. And so those people are out in the population. And so the virus is going to spread uh, regardless of what we do. It reminds me of the movie Titanic. Um, I can remember uh, you had the guy who built the ship 
and the Titanic was impacting the the iceberg and the uh you know everybody was standing around the table talking about what to do and and um the the guy who built the ship sort of looked at everything and he he looks up and he goes um no matter what we do from this point forward titanic will flounder we can tolerate four compartments being flooded but not five and i i remember it was a really dramatic point in the movie i love that movie um that's what's happening with COVID-19. It is out. It's already out, and it's going to spread uh, throughout our country, uh, just as viruses do typically. And nothing we're going to do is going to put the genie back in the bottle. So remember that the lockdowns were designed to prevent an influx of patients going to the hospitals and overwhelming the system so that people couldn't get treated. Well, somehow this mortality and this overwhelming of hospitals turned into cases. And then people just started reporting new cases. And that brings me to the next hoax. So as a guy who's following the numbers all the time, I went, I go on to Worldometer every day and I, um, I evaluate the, uh, the, um, the numbers of deaths in every country. I'm looking at new cases. Um, I'm looking at discharges, meaning people who get better. And I'm trying to put all this information together. And what we started to realize is that the numbers here were starting to get fudged. So as testing increased, um, people were noticing that uh, there were different kinds of tests, right? Some of you might be aware there's what we call a PCR test, polymerase chain reaction, where we can actually test for the presence of the virus. So that would tell us if it's positive, the patient actually has virus in their body versus an antibody test, which can just show that you're, you're, um, you're already have had the virus and you've cleared it or that you're immune to virus. So the CDC has already reported that they accidentally conflated all of these numbers. Uh, and so you can imagine if you're taking all of the people that have already been exposed to the disease, which, again, remember, that's the supermajority of patients don't even know they're sick. You're taking those people and combining it with people that are actively sick. And then you're presenting that on the news every day is the number of new cases now. This is not my opinion. This is not a conspiracy theory. The CDC has already reported that they made this mistake. And I would beg the question, based on everything we've seen so far, is this just another honest mistake or is this politically motivated to drive up numbers, to make us hysterical and to propagate this lockdown, which, again, is not based in any science? And I would argue the masks is part of that. You know, there's a psychological impact of people wearing masks, right? I mean, I'm 55 years old, and I can tell you it's weird. I've never experienced anything like this in my life. When I go out there, people are wearing masks everywhere. Um, I'm a doctor, so I spend all of my time watching how people are wearing masks and the type of masks that people are wearing, and it's making me laugh because nobody is wearing the proper mask properly, and nobody is wearing the proper mask continuously. So any argument that anybody has with me about the efficacy of masks is completely discredited because nobody is wearing the mask properly. Nobody is wearing a proper mask properly. And uh, so any study that you show me that shows a mask is effective is pointless to me. Now, on top of that, you can't show me a study that definitively shows that masks uh, um, prevent the transmission of this virus. Now, listen, I'm... um, I'm not one of these people who say it's conclusive that masks don't work. 
All I'm saying is there's no evidence, even a little, to suggest that it does work. And they're making policy based on this very flimsy at best information. And the psychological effect of masks is to keep us afraid, to keep it on the forefront of our mind that things are 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 deadly dangerous. And it makes it easy for us to be influenced into more lockdowns and more draconian shutdowns. Now, the next thing is, um, who is this affecting? So I was telling you guys I'm the type of person, and because I have a medical practice and a vested interest in this, I've been following the numbers every single day. And so the number one thing I was worried about was who's dying, right? New cases, I mean, it's not super important if you get the disease and you don't even know you have it. I want to know. What is the percentage of people that's dying? And that is never produced. We can never see that. When you go on a worldometer, I have to dig those numbers out myself. There's no easy graph that's pointing out that people are old and have um, um, comorbid conditions. There are several studies out there that are demonstrating that. Um, but it's not easy uh, to identify that. And so following these numbers has gotten very, very difficult. And I can see these numbers change as the politics has changed. So, for example, early on in the virus and and actually till recently, it was clear that the majority of deaths were occurring in New York, New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania, and a lot of these blue states, California, and that fewer cases were in Texas and Florida and Arizona. Um, That was reported in the in the literature that was supported by the data. And you could tell that political opponents of Trump couldn't have that, where blue states, where masks and lockdowns were doing worse than red states with no masks and no lockdowns. And so what suddenly began to happen? Of course, the spike in numbers. And this spike in numbers, again, pushes a narrative. And so I started to go on to the world of meter um, numbers like I have been. And all of a sudden you see this crazy um, graph which shows that in the blue states, you get a nice flattening of the curve, meaning deaths are decreasing in the blue states. And in the red states, you're seeing an exponential increase in the deaths. And isn't that convenient for people who are advocating for lockdown and masks? And then John Solomon came out with an article that was amazing in Just the News. uh, And what he noticed was that on July 7th, Arizona reported 117 new deaths, and it was reported all around the media as new record of new deaths in Arizona. And what they failed to report was that um, most of those deaths were people who had died much earlier and were just logged on that day. The actual number of deaths that occurred on July 7th in Arizona was 53 so the the record of deaths in Arizona was on June 30th, okay, before July, okay? The record number of deaths was before the the lockdowns and before the face masks. But the media seems to be interested in spinning a narrative that red states that opened up that are not necessarily mandating masks are having spikes in deaths in cases and that the blue states are not. And John Solomon also reported that uh, in Florida, they reported a single day on Ju- July the 16th, 156 deaths. It was reported all across the news media, Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, all of the usual suspects, 156 deaths. What was the actual number? 58. 
Now, I'll tell you, even in my own experience, I was on Fox News, I think it was last Friday, and I was being interviewed about masks, and I was giving my opinion on masks, which largely was predicated, well, not predicated, but was very similar to what Dr. Fauci was saying about masks early on, because that's what we're taught in medical school. And then they had another person from Harvard, um, you know, credentials are always, don't listen to what he says, just he's from Harvard. He all of a sudden was saying, there's no argument about masks. Everybody knows about masks. And he cited these statistics in Florida and Arizona is evidence of masks. Well, let's go back and look and see they were lying. Okay, well, you know, let's be charitable. They were at least making a horrible mistake. You need to re- read John Solomon's article in Just the News on this uh, very subject. But um, he called and tried to figure out what was going on. And he was getting this response like, oh, it was a computer glitch. And you know, it's getting harder and harder to believe that any of this is just accident. It's looking to be more and more contrived so that we can push this narrative of lockdowns and masks and keeping the economy shut down because it's political advantage for some. Um, it also is financial advantage. So we know that um, HHS has uh, allocated $10 billion to some hot spots uh, for the management of covid Medicare has offered a 20% increase in COVID admissions. We know that looking into the numbers, we know that hospitals are being incentivized financially to diagnose people with COVID. And we can see uh, there was a Texas uh, town council meeting uh, that has gone viral on social media. You can actually listen to the entire thing. Um, I think it was in Collins County. And you're listening to these county commissioners talk about how they're documenting new cases and they've deployed these contact tracers and they're counting new cases in people that just came into contact with somebody who tested positive for the virus massively artificially inflating the number of cases so now it's gotten to this point where the numbers are just completely untrustworthy they're uh, very difficult to evaluate um And it's really frustrating to me because I have a real life, real world objective of taking care of my patients and and treating my patients effectively. And it's getting more and more difficult to evaluate the numbers. Another problem we already talked about, the CDC already admitted that they're combining PCR tests, meaning patients who actually have the virus, with patients with positive antibodies, meaning they may have already become immune and don't have the virus as new cases. These numbers are very, very confusing, um, whether they're on purpose and by design or whether they're accidental um, is is difficult. There's another uh, place, I can't remember exactly where it was, they are conflating antibody tests to people who have antibodies to the regular coronavirus. So, you know, coronavirus is a family of viruses. There's a lot of different kinds, many of which cause the common cold. And so they were combining people who had COVID-19 with patients who had other coronaviruses, again, artificially inflating the numbers. Um, We also know from the uh, HHS and the CDC This diagnosis of COVID does not require confirmation in many cases that um, that uh, simply being one of the many uh, uh, causes of death. We've seen the famous case where somebody was killed by in a motorcycle accident, but was posted as a positive COVID death. 
These numbers are being artificially inflated. Another part of this hoax, they were reporting in the news places like Arizona were at 70% capacity. The concept was, oh my God, the hospital's at 70% capacity? But what they leave out is that the hospital's normally at 85% capacity. The other thing is now they're trying to start the narrative of overwhelming the system. And a lot of these hospitals, because of this massive shutdown, had to lay off workers. And many of them went out of business, took a massive financial hurt. Uh, so they have, they're understaffed. And now, even if there is an increase in COVID, I mean, it's hard to know because the numbers are so artificial and so... Um, inaccurate but you're having another problem people are coming back to the the hospital for other conditions that they didn't get treated when they were afraid of covid and so you're having this combination of a decreased hospital staff covid patients and the 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 bunch of people that have been put off for the last several months that just can't wait any longer and that is what's creating this illusion of overwhelming the system and again it's gotten to the point now where it's really hard to evaluate the level of the threat because these numbers are just so impossible to interpret because it's one statistical manipulation after another to keep us afraid, to keep us believing that the the pandemic is out of control and that we need to continue lockdowns. And all I want as a physician, all I want as as a uh, as a citizen of this country is Please let's have an honest debate about the facts. Please let's talk about the best way to proceed forward. And let's not engage in cancel culture. Let's not ostracize anybody who has differences of opinions. Let's have an open and honest discussion about what's going on here so that we can do what's best for our children. The research out there is clear on the children. They're at minimal risk of contracting the disease. They're not transmitting the disease to their um to their parents. They recently had an interview uh, that was that was very popular in the news last week where five out of five pediatricians said that they would send their kids to school back without hesitation. I would do the same. Listen, this is not a threat that we aren't able to handle. This is not even something that we haven't seen before. But let's be honest and open with each other, and let's get through this together. I appreciate you all being here today on another episode of The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. My name is Dr. Scott Barber. You can reach me on Twitter at, at Dr. Scott underscore Atlanta. I look forward to hearing, seeing you guys next time. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.